Well, good morning. morning. That was pretty good on the first time. Not too bad. Good morning. My name is Jay. I'm the pastor here. Uh, Welcome to Cultivate. We are in a series called Desperate. Um, Let me sort of catch you up to speed if you weren't here last week. The the theme of this series is uh, desperate, and uh, we are supposed to be desperate, right? Uh, And we are actually desperate. We're always going to be desperate on something, for something, for someone that's in our lives. And it's just a matter of where we place that desperation. So every time we we have a need in our life, a desire, we immediately fill that desire with something. And so what we're saying is throughout this series, we're going to be looking at what it means to cultivate a, a deep dependency to the point of desperation on God and not on other things. And so if you were here last week, you'd know that we started out by looking at idols and the the place, the role that they play in our lives, how we fill that dependency uh, that we have in our lives on things that the Bible calls idols. And the basic premise of our series is this, and I told you to write this down last week, I'll tell you it again. The the main uh, sort of presupposition of this series is that God's presence is found most with those who are most desperate for him. I'll repeat that again. God's presence is found most with those who are most desperate for him. And so if we want to experience something of the presence of God in our lives, we need to be willing to get to the point of desperate dependence on him so that he'll show up. It's not that he's not there, but sometimes it's that we've already created things in our lives where we're placing our dependency on already. So we looked at idols last week, and uh, we're going to sort of transition this week. My goal really throughout this entire series is that we would look kind of at the end of this series, we'd look back and say to ourselves, wow, God was really up to something in my life at that point. That in the middle of all the stuff that was happening in life and all the trials and hardships that even we had to experience with some of our friends and family members, <clears throat> that through that all, God was teaching me something very important about where to place dependency. And that I see clearly now maybe more than I did six weeks ago, remember this is on the other end, uh, that I've been placing my dependency on other things, relying on other areas in my life and other people to fill that role that only God can fill, that only he was designed to fill in my life. That this would be kind of a watershed moment for us. We'd look back and go, that's when I really got serious about this thing. And I wasn't just serious about getting something from God. I wanted to know him and what he provides and who he is. Um, this is, whole series is based out of Psalm 142, and it says this, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Now, last week, we learned that one of our sort of desperate needs is to identify the role that idols play in our lives. And this week, as it turns out, we're not done in terms of co- sort of cleaning our closet, so to speak, of things that happen to sort of take up residence in our lives. There's something else that we need to deal with before we can sort of turn a corner and then look at the positive side of what it actually means to be dependent on God. So last week we looked at idols, and this week we're going to look at something else, something that the Bible calls sin. And so I'm distinguishing this from idols, and um, the reason for that is because uh, we often think of sin as something that you deal with when you come to faith in Jesus, right? And so you've got sinful people over here, you've got Jesus, people come to Jesus and they're no longer sinful. Jesus sort of deals with sin at one point in time, 
and then Christians go on to live their lives free of that influence in their lives, free to worship God in, in every area of life. Is that true? That hasn't been my experience. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Hasn't been my experience. Um, I was sort of rudely awakened to that fact about six months after I had come to faith in Christ, given my full life over to him. I was, I was completely serious about it. God, I have nothing to, to give except for myself. I'm, just, I'm giving myself to you. God, take all of me and, and do what you will. And I discovered kind of throughout a process of six months that not everything changed overnight. Um, I was still doing a lot of the same things that I wanted to not do before I had given my life to Jesus. And so I remember having this one point in time where I'm thinking to myself, God, what gives, you know? Like, what happened? You gave me the offer. I gave you myself. I gave you my sin. You gave me your life. I'm, I should be new. I should be completely new. What's going on here? And so we often don't realize that sin can continue to play a role in our lives well past the time when we actually come to know Jesus. And that's actually what a lot of coming to know Jesus is about because it's actually a lifelong process for many of us. And so I want to kind of start this out. Um, you know, since the, the title of this series is called Desperate, and uh, at least one person got the idea that this might be a series on dating, that... Uh, <laughs> That I'd start out, I'd give you sort of your money's worth and give you some free dating advice along the way. How about that? Okay? You didn't ask for it, but somebody got the idea that it might be about dating. And so here are two things, that uh, two sort of free tidbits for you. Um, there are two things. Actually, there are a lot of things, right? But there, there are two things that I'm going to highlight that will automatically wreck any relationship that you have. Two things that will sort of railroad any relationship that you have, you're wondering, what is he going to highlight, right? Um, the first is this. When we deny or minimize the wrongs that we've committed against the people that we're in relationship with, that is a deal breaker, right? Um, guys, I'll talk to you for a second. D ladies, don't sort of kind of do that selective hearing thing that, that you do so well. Um, have you ever had a conversation like this? Uh, your, somebody you're in a relationship with, your spouse, your significant other, says, I'm extremely angry at you. And you go, honey, I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, what are you sorry for? Um, for hurting you, right? How did you hurt me? Um, I didn't take out the garbage. I, you know, you're making like these mental lists in your mind. You have, in reality, you have no idea what you've done wrong, right? But somehow there has been a great offense done, and you have no idea what it is. Uh, if you continue to do that over time, guys, this is my advice to you. If you continue to do that over time, that will break your relationship. If you're never honest about the things that you've done wrong, or you constantly try to minimize and come up with excuses for those things, that will break a relationship, will it not? I've seen it happen a lot of times. Um, on the other hand, here's the second piece of advice. Uh, if you are constantly sorry about something and you're never sure what, that can be a deal breaker too, right? You ever meet some of those people? I'm sorry, for what? I don't know. I'm just, 
I'm just sorry. They never really know what they're sorry about. They just have constant guilt. They're always sorry. They're always apologizing for something. They're never quite sure what. They just feel sort of self-condemned, and so they pass that condemnation on to other people. Those people are very difficult to be around. Am I right? Very difficult to be around because they're, con- they're, they're sort of always bringing everything down. There's sort of this self-condemnation going on. When we minimize or when we're constantly sorry, uh, it tends to have a negative impact on our relationships. I'll give you a great example of one of these. Uh, recently, not too long ago, there was a politician in the news who uh, had done some things that were wrong. I'll put that mildly. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but if you follow the news, you probably be able to figure it out. Yeah, right. Later on, um, after this politician was caught and shown the error of his ways, he made a public apology of sorts. Uh, And this is exactly what he says. I'm reading verbatim his quote. He says, two years ago, I made a very serious mistake, a mistake that I am responsible for and no one else. In 2006, I told my wife about the mistake. I asked for her forgiveness, asked God for his forgiveness, and have kept this within our family since that time. Anonymous politician. Uh, you, You may be able to guess who this is. Do you notice a word that sort of repeats itself here? I've highlighted it for you. you... (laughs) No, Jay, I don't see it. (laughs) I don't know. You may be colorblind and not be able to see it. I don't know. Mistake. I know maybe you know know a little bit about the situation, too. Uh, It was far more than a mistake. What is a mistake? A mistake is doing something wrong without knowing why you're doing it or what the reaction will be. Correct? This is sin. <laughs> it is. He, he willingly knew exactly what he was doing to his wife and his family, and he chose to do it anyway over the possible consequences to him, to his family, to his career, and to those who made their living off of his political career. It's sin. It's not a mistake. And so sometimes when we minimize the things that we do and try to pass them off as mistakes, we're actually undermining those things. Um, Their relationship didn't work out so well in the end. And, And I think that's not only because of what he did, but how he tried to resolve what he did. He minimized. He denied that it was any sort of serious thing. It was a mistake. Um, let me say this, in the same way, and I'm using sort of earthly relationships to highlight sort of a spiritual relationship with God. When we do the same thing with God, it harms our relationship with him. You and I will never have the kind of dependency bordering on desperation that we need. God will never show up. His presence will never be known to you more than just in small quantities if you minimize the wrongs that you've perpetrated against him or you're constantly sorry without really knowing why. Uh, There's a great story that highlights this that I'm going to use this morning uh, from John 4. It's a very familiar passage about this woman who's at a well that Jesus encounters on his journeys. So let me bring you up to speed and then we're going to 
sort of highlight a piece of this. There's a lot that we could teach on this, um, but we're going to highlight sort of one element of it. And in John 4, uh, Jesus, what he's doing is he's traveling from Judea, which is in the south of the region, to Galilee, where he is from, in the north. And in order to travel from south to north, there's an area in between called Samaria. Uh, And you needed, if you were going to go from one to the other, unless you took this extreme course to kind of get around it and not travel through there, you had to travel through Samaria to get where you were going if you were traveling from one place to another. And so Jesus is on his way, traveling between these two areas, and they stop in a small town by a well. Um, This is sort of like going through Camden to get to Philly, in a sense. Um, it's not the kind of place that you'd want to sort of stop and, and, and linger for very long. Um, the people there, Samaritans, weren't, t- despite what you know from the Good Samaritan story, weren't thought of as great people. They were thought of as sort of half-breed type people. Um, they didn't really fit anywhere. They were sort of a cross between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. And so Jewish people really didn't have much good to think about these folks. Uh, they were sort of outside of, of God's work in the world, on the sidelines, the people that were sort of marginalized from the rest of society. And so Jesus is traveling on his way through here, and he stops at a well. While he's at the well, there's a woman that comes in from town about the middle of the day to come and draw water. If you know anything about Middle Eastern society, which I assume you don't, so I'm going to tell you anyway, um, you don't want to go, if you live in an arid region of the country, we're talking desert here, you don't want to go and travel to a well in the middle of the day. Why not? Yeah, it's pretty hot, kind of like it's been hot here. Hot, humid, the sun is beating down on you. You don't want to walk miles carrying water back to your town, do you? It's, it's not the kind of thing that you do. So most people would come to the well either early in the morning or late in the evening, just enough light to see but not enough to sort of scorch you on the way. So the fact that this woman is coming in the middle of the day tells you something very specific about her background. So you're already sort of set up here. What kind of woman is this and how is Jesus going to deal with her? And they get into a conversation and they start talking about water. And she notices that Jesus doesn't have any cup. And so Jesus, in return, starts talking about living water. Essentially what he says is, if you draw water from this well, you're going to continue to get thirsty. But I have something called living water, and if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. Now this sparks something in her, right? This is like, I've never heard of this living water. Tell me more about it. And so she begins to ask Jesus about this living water. And she asks him for some of it. Sir, can I please have some? And so we'll pick up the story there. Uh, in verse 16 with Jesus' response. So she asked him for living water, and this is his response, very curious response. Not sure if you'd respond this way. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. It's a very odd statement, right? She's the one that's there to, to sort of collect the water, and now he's asking for her husband. She says in response, I have no husband, she replied. And look at what Jesus says next. Jesus says to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Awkward, right? (laughs) Can you feel, like, the tension in this? I can't, you know, I can't imagine being this woman. You're asking about living water. All of a sudden Jesus asks you where your husband is, and you go, well, 
if I'm going to be sort of honest with you, I'm going to say that I have no husband. And Jesus sort of opens the floodgates and goes, yeah, you're right, because I know about it. You have five husbands, and the person you live with now isn't your husband. He knows a little bit more about her than she anticipated, right? Um, to a point of being a little scary. It turns, about, it turns out that Jesus already knew everything that there was to know about her. This is a pretty amazing thing, right? And look at her response. She says this, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. <laughs> it's like the understatement of the Bible, right? In other words, let's talk about something else. How, you seem finely dressed, you know? <laughs> a very poor attempt at changing the subject. But the, listen to what she says this. Uh, in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Her response is, is essentially this. Okay, so you know my history. I get that. Uh, but the problem is, I'm a Samaritan, and I don't have access to the place where forgiveness is found. Right? So Jesus is essentially coming from Jerusalem. She knows this. She perceives he's a prophet. Obviously, Jesus knows something about her. He sees her history, but she says in response, oh, okay, you got me. I'm not who I sort of, you know, I'm not living up to what I should, but I don't have access to the place of forgiveness. It's not like I can just waltz into Jerusalem. I've got to stay here on this mountain, and we Samaritans don't have access to the things that you guys do down in Jerusalem. She's essentially saying, you see me for who I am, but I have no ability to get forgiveness. Right? Look at what Jesus' response. It's pretty eye-opening. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Very familiar phrase. In what? Spirit and in truth. Very powerful phrase. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. In other words, Jesus is saying, Look, because I'm here, because I have come, God is now calling people everywhere to put aside the places where they used to worship and now worship anywhere they are in spirit and in truth. And because I've come, you now have access to that. I, don't, I not only see your history, but you have access to this living water which we were already talking about. I'm the one that brings it. And because of that, it changes everything. I not only see you, but I care for you, is what Jesus is saying. Amazing, amazing phrase. It's not only being honest about who she was, right? But it was being willing for God to change her into who she could be. That's essentially what Jesus is offering. And so the point of the story is this. I'm going to highlight two things. I'm going to keep with my two-theme message here. And the first is this. Desperate people are honest about their sin. You can't be desperate and not be honest about your sin. The woman sort of tried to be half honest, right? But what did Jesus do? She saw past some of her dishonesty to the whole story. Desperate people are brutally honest about their sin with God. And they're specific. Um, there's a, a fantastic passage in 1 John, and we're going to highlight that. 1 John chapter 1. And it says this. Same writer, by the way, that's writing John 4. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's verse 8. Skip one verse, and then look at verse 10. If we claim that we have not sinned, 
we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in us. There is something happening uh, in the time that John is writing this. There's a group of people, you may have heard of them before, called Gnostics. Essentially what the Gnostics were saying is, Jesus was a great person, um, you Christians are doing a great thing, but there's a problem. Jesus had some special knowledge that he didn't tell you guys. He only told us. And because we have this special knowledge, we have access to a life in Jesus that you guys don't have access to. Um, this, this sort of brand of Christianity has been carried on through today. Think of Dan Brown um, and uh, the Da Vinci Code. Same sort of line of thinking. There is a secret hidden knowledge that only a certain group of people had, and if that knowledge were sort of given out to the masses, it would break everything down, right? And so you need to know this special knowledge over here. You need to have access to it. And if you don't have access to it, you have no access to God. And these same people were minimizing what they had done wrong. They said, we're not necessarily sinful. We don't need to sort of be honest about our sin because we have this knowledge. Because we know something certain about God, we don't have to be honest about our sin. And John is, is combating that by saying, look, if you claim to, to not have sin, if you claim that you are without it, somehow in your life, then we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in us. Now, why a liar? Because if you look at what Jesus said, he said that we're not all we're cracked up to be, right? He said we have a long way to come. Not only that, but we've rebelled against God in every single way, and because of that rebellion, God had to do something miraculous and intervene into our story. We call that the incarnation. God in the flesh is literally what it means that Jesus came down from heaven, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again, that it took that level of intervention for us to solve our sin problem. And if we say back to God, now on the other side of the cross, God, I have no sin, essentially what we're saying is, God, you didn't send your son here. Right? We're making him out to be a liar. And if we're making him out to be a liar, then there's no possible way that God's word resides in us. That's essentially what, God, what John is saying here. You need to be honest about your sin. Um, there's a, a great uh, 17th century English pastor by the name of John Owen. He puts it this way. He that has slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts of God. I think that's pretty true. He that has slight thoughts of sin never had great thoughts about God. Because the higher you elevate yourself, the lower you elevate God. You've got to be honest about the condition of your heart if you're going to be desperate for God. So just like we need to identify sort of the external idols in our life, we need to identify the idol that lives in our own hearts as well. The second thing is this. Firstly, people are desperate, or desperate people uh, are honest with God about their sin. The second thing is this. Desperate people... Let God deal honestly with their sin. They're not only honest about their sin, they let God deal honestly with it. Um, so if you notice, I, I pulled a trick on you, didn't I? Uh, we looked at 1 John 1. What verses? 8 and 10. What did I leave out? 9. Um, verses 8 and 10 
would be very difficult passages to read if it weren't for verse 9. Uh, verse 9 is one of the most powerful passages in, in all of the Bible, and it says this. If we confess our sins, that is, if we, being honest with ourselves and, being, and letting God deal honestly with our sin, confession is simply this. It's saying the same thing about who you are that God says you are. And it's saying the same thing about the things in your life that God says about those things. So in other words, you can say, yeah, God, I'm an adulterer. You got me. But it's not so bad. You're not saying the same thing God is. Right? Because he's, he calls that sin. And so confession is only when we say the same thing about those things that God says. So if we confess, if we say the same thing about our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Faithful, just. He will forgive us and purify us of all unrighteousness. I need to think of that verse just for a second. That means that if we are honest before God, and if we allow God access to all the things that we've done wrong in our life, to deal with honestly, God not only forgives us of those things, but he washes us clean as if they were never there. So remember I said two things that are deal breakers in relationship. The first is minimizing, and the second is constantly being sorry about something, right? The thing about our relationship with God, if we're just constantly guilty, and, and sometimes we can get into this pattern that we're just, God, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry because I'm sorry. I don't even know what to say anymore. We sort of get into this guilt pattern. We don't really know why we're condemned, but we just feel like we're condemned. That's not saying the same thing God is either. Because what God says here is, if you confess those things, if you just be honest with them, and let me deal honestly with them, then I would not only forgive you, but I'd wipe them away as if they were never there. And now you can go and live in a clean life. You can go and live and be a part of a new direction that you never have access to before apart from me. It's exactly what he's saying in verse 9. See, in order for us to be honest about our sin and to let God deal honestly with it, uh, there are two things that... Here, I'm sticking with my theme of two. There are two things that we need to understand about God. Not just at a head level, but really at a heart and experience level. If we don't understand these things about God, we will never be able to capture these two things and become people who are desperate for God's presence. It will never happen. There are two things that you need to know, as our, as our story sort of highlights. If God sees your sin, if he sees it for what it is, just like the woman in the story, he knows your, your story in every gritty detail, but he doesn't forgive, then God is like this sort of angry absentee landlord, right? He just sort of looks in on your life from time to time and goes, yep, just what I thought it was. I see it. I'm not happy about it, but I see it. Right? If he sees but not forgive, that's exactly the kind of God we serve, who doesn't deserve our service, by the way. On the flip side, if God forgives you for sin, but doesn't see the minute detail and travesty of the actual sins that you and I commit, then what is he like? 
He's sort of like a mother that sort of glosses over the bad things that her son does, right? She knows that he sort of does some bad things. She knows that he goes out late and doesn't come back till early in the morning. She, she sort of has an idea about what goes on, but she chooses not to see it for what it is. And she just loves him anyway. I just love my son anyway. But she has absolutely no idea what goes on. Everybody else can see it for what it is. They know him better than she does. She has no idea what's going on, but she forgives. If God forgives you but doesn't see exactly what you do, that's exactly the kind of God that we serve. But what kind of God is that, right? That's the kind of God that you can hide things from and never have true intimacy and dependency on. Here's the most important thing. If you're going to remember one thing from today, remember this. God both sees and forgives. He both sees and he forgives. There's a tremendous passage in Psalm 130. It says this. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. What the psalmist is saying is that he knows exactly what you've been up to. And so there's no sense in hiding it from him. Just like the woman with Jesus, he knows the whole story. So your attempts to hide things that happen in your life only serve to drive you further away from him. They don't bring you closer. It's just like hiding things from your spouse don't bring you closer. At the same time, God forgives Every single one of those has the ability to. If we confess those things, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. See, we often think of God's love as unconditional. When we say things like, God loves me for who I am, the story of the Bible is better than that. I think that's a sort of a false sham of what the Bible actually teaches. God doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you in spite of who you are. That's an even more powerful message. It's not unconditional love. It's contra-conditional. It's in spite of the condition of our hearts. If we're really being honest with ourselves, God doesn't hold those things against us. It says, if you held a record of wrongs, God, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness of sins. In Christ, there is no condemnation. Those things are washed completely away as if they never existed. If he only sees but offers forgiveness anyway, that's not the kind of God we want to serve. God sees everything, and yet he forgives. Uh, This is tremendous news. I was thinking about this this morning um, as I was praying and preparing for this message today. It is tremendous news for us as individuals and for us as a church uh, because it means that we can have a dependency on God regardless of what we've done in the past. Isn't that great news? And we can have a dependency on God despite uh, the sort of sinful nature of our hearts because God offers us new dependence on him. Isn't that great news? And we can be honest with ourselves and with other people that we are, in fact, sinners. I was having a great conversation with, with uh, Gary Gerfin the other night. And he, says, uh, he said something along the lines of, I think I'll come back and be a part of your community 
because you guys are just as screwed up as I am. <laughs> I said, Gary, you have no idea how true that statement is. <laughs> it's precisely the point, exactly. There's two mistakes, though, that we can make if we're not careful. And so this is why I thought that this particular message was so important. Uh, because there are two pitfalls that we can fall into, and a lot of churches do. Now, the first is this. I'm going to stay with the two theme. The first is that we can downplay our sin, right? We can minimize it. We can deny it's there. We can try to be better people than we really are. And the second is that we can convince ourselves that God wants us to remain exactly the way that we are. We can just sort of play the I'm sorry game and continue to live in guilt and in unforgiveness. Let me say this. God does not want you or I to live in either of those realities. He just doesn't want it for our lives. Um, but if I'm being really honest about the way that people perceive churches, not just people in general, but the people that reside in our neighborhoods that are sometimes antagonistic towards religious you know, communities, especially churches around this area, is that they often perceive us as having those two qualities in general. They see Christians as people who minimize sin and frailty. And because of that, what word do they use for us? Hypocrites, exactly. What other word would they use if we're going to minimize sin? At the same time, we can play this game, and this was really popular, is actually sort of dying down at the time that I was sort of coming to faith, is the I'm a sinner um, sort of movement within Christianity. The people get tattoos that said sinner, um, and, and people sort of started to revel in this idea that, that I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and always with the connotation on myself. And I would submit to you that that's not actual true humility either. That's just sort of looking at ourselves and thinking lower of ourselves than we ought to. The fact is, yes, you are a sinner, but God doesn't want you to remain in that condition. He wouldn't have sent his son Jesus if you weren't intended to transcend that condition. God wouldn't have given us a spirit, his spirit, to reside within us, to live a new life, if he wanted you to remain in that condition. The truth is this, if your sin and mine wasn't that serious, then Jesus would have never died for it. But on the other hand, if radical grace and transformation weren't possible, then why in the world would Jesus give us his Holy Spirit? He would have just saved us and said, okay, go on living your life the way you were before. I've covered your sin. Now wait for me and come to heaven someday. He doesn't do that either. He says, go and live and be a part of my kingdom because what? I am with you. That's exactly what he says. I think, you know, if going back to this story, looking back at the Samaritan woman, that she got these two things right. Looking back on her life, um, when it came down to the final word, I think she under understood these two things. She was honest with her sin, and she let God deal honestly with it. She understood something about Jesus, who now she, she had met for the first time, that Jesus not only saw her sin, but he forgave her for her sin. Because there's a tremendous sort of wrap-up to her story. The way that we know that she got it right is by looking a little bit further down the page and seeing what actually came about from her story. So let's pick it back up in, actually, in verse uh, 39. 
It says this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. In other words, he saw me for who I am, and he loved me anyway. And because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. But they said to the woman, this is great. This is sort of the point of the, the entire thing. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. When people are desperate for God and they get these two things right, there is something magnificent that takes place. It doesn't just reside with them. It transfers out to other people around them. People who have a healthy dependency on God, who are honest about their sin and let God deal honestly with it, have an effect on people around them unlike anyone else you know. Because other people see their honesty, their authenticity, see that God actually does intervene and create a new way of life and want that exact same thing for themselves. The more honest that we are, the more we allow God into it, the more that other people want to be honest about it and let God into their lives too. If we play a game where God, you know, we just pretend to be somebody that we're not, or if we constantly minimize, that kind of Christianity, that kind of relationship with Jesus never transfers to other people. They see a good show, doesn't matter what kind of worship music we put on, but if they don't see that kind of transformation in individual lives, then it will never transfer to them. The story of this woman's life is that she was incredibly, truly dependent on God. And when she was, it was contagious. It naturally led to others wanting for themselves that same dependency on God. And that's what we're really after, correct? As a church, as individuals. We want to know God and we want others to know God. We want to be deeply rooted in him and we want to produce fruit so that others are deeply rooted in him. It's exactly what we're about as a church. And she demonstrates it beautifully. So that's going to be the question that I leave you. And I encourage you uh, the rest of this morning and this week to do these two things. One is to be honest with God. And by honest, I mean be specific. Let God in to that inner dialogue. Stop holding things away from him and saying, God, you have access to this part of my life but not this one back here. I'm going to hold this away from you. If you really want true intimacy with God, you got to give him everything. That's how it works. The second thing that I would encourage you to do is to let, let God deal honestly with your sin. If you're the kind of person that's prone to sort of self-condemnation and sort of just feeling sorry and guilty all the time, then I want you to do something very specific. You can either do it this morning or on your own time some other time uh, when you're by yourself. Spend time with God, but go somewhere. And so this morning, if you come and take communion, um, imagine yourself bringing those sins that you feel guilty about along with you. And when you take communion, imagine yourself putting them down at the foot of the cross, taking communion, which is the symbol of God's broken body for you, his shed blood, so that you could be forgiven of sin. 
and take that as a replacement and imagine yourself just backing up and leaving it there. If you don't want to do that this morning, then I encourage you, if you're an outdoor person, go into the woods and do the same sort of thing. Go there to meet with God, and when you leave, leave it all with Him. And understand that God not just forgives you, but He cleanses you. If you're honest with your sin, and you let God deal honestly with it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not only a God who sees us for who we are, but you're a God who forgives. And we thank you, God, that, that uh, you've created us to be in relationship with you. You've created us to find our dependency on you. And sometimes we get it wrong. Oftentimes we get it wrong. And we look elsewhere. Um, God, I pray that in this next time of our worship and our time together with you and with one another, that you would allow us to be honest with those things that we've held back from you. And that, God, we would trust you enough to lay them down at your feet and to know that you provide for us full forgiveness. And so, God, we ask for your forgiveness. We'd ask that you'd make us new through the power of your Spirit. As a church, I pray that you would create in us a desire to be dependent on you. And even as we turn the corner and begin to look at what it means to have true dependency, that we would leave behind these things that we've held against you and against ourselves for so long. God, we thank you for your son. Thank you that there's new life in him. We ask it for his name's sake, Jesus.